everybody, I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we're here for a very special episode! It'll come out on World Whale Day. Yeah, and we're here to answer your questions. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about our Patreon at patreon.com slash whaletales. Patreon is a site where you can easily support projects like whaletales for as little as a dollar a month. You'll get access to perks like an exclusive weekly newsletter. The support of our patrons really means so much to us and helps us run the website and this podcast. So, happy World Whale Day, everybody, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out. We love whales, and you probably do too, and (laughs) we're very happy that there is a day that celebrates the love of whales, and to celebrate, we decided to do our first ever mailbag episode. So, a huge, huge thank you to everybody on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and also in person, people who just, like, tracked us down on the street. Not so much, but... (laughs) My husband did track me down uh, on our couch and asked me a question. Um, Thank you to everybody who sent in their questions for us to answer in our first ever mailbag. Uh, We were a little bit overwhelmed with the number of responses we got, which is an excellent problem to have. So what that means is that before you have even finished listening to this first episode, we have decided that we are definitely going to do more. Mm -hmm. Woohoo! So we are likely not going to be able to answer all of the questions that we got in today's episode, but there will definitely be future mailbag episodes. And uh, some of the questions were so completely out of left field, things that I had never even thought to ask, that they might also show up in future Fun Flipper Facts, which is a lovely amount of alliteration to start our show off today. Um, I also wanted to put in a disclaimer right at the beginning of the episode before we get to answering any of your questions, uh, that as we were researching the answers to these questions, um, all three of us are located in British Columbia, in Vancouver specifically, which has come up in a few episodes in the past. And so there is uh, a little bit of a North American centrist bias to the information that we are able to access. So that comes into sort of like Google search engine analyst i have no idea how google works but it knows where i am so it provides me with information somewhat associated with that and we try our best to get away from those biases uh, and we try our best to and we're going to talk about sort of where our sources of information come from and how you too can be a informed critical analysis citizen um, and how you can get real true appropriate answers to questions that you have uh, but there is a bias depending on where you come from and also this fact that the three of us speak primarily English and so we are also limited to studies and information that we can find in the language we speak uh, I do speak some French but reading a scientific paper published in French is, <laughs> is a little bit beyond my comprehension at this point in my French studies <laughs> so, yeah. nice um, so with that being case, let's get to our very first question. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of languages, our first question comes from our very famous Spanish interpreter who translates all of the comments we get in Spanish when I screenshot them to her and say, what does this mean? <laughs> so, thanks, Val. Thanks, Val, for all of your help in the last five years and also for asking this very excellent question. Where in the world is the largest population of killer whales? 
So this is an actually surprisingly hard question to answer because outside the Eastern North Pacific, uh, populations are not always well understood or well studied. Like, this is one of the first things that comes up. Uh, people know a lot about the southern resident killer whales as well as the bigs and the northern residents that live off of our coast. So a lot of people, especially around here, just assume that that amount of knowledge is known for all the populations, and that is not the case. Uh, we couldn't find any reliable or consistent population estimates for the Antarctic killer whales. Some websites listed as 70,000 and others 25,000. Um, and then, although most sites agree that worldwide orca populations are around 50,000, so that's... Somebody's wrong. <laughs> um, and those sites also don't differentiate between the different ecotypes in Antarctica, um, I don't think we've talked about this yet. I can't remember. But there are... We did current... talk about it in our Orca episode okay. um, that came out last, last year's June. Orca month. Yeah. In last June. We talked about the five different ecotypes five, in Antarctica. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the winter distribution in Antarctica is very unknown because nobody can study it because it's horrible and dark. So you can't go down there and count the killer whales because you can't see them. Um, <laughs> also they're not there they're uh, up further north in warmer waters because they're not dumb uh, but we don't know we like the they saw type D killer whales a couple weeks ago for like something like the fourth time in all of human history or something so it's really hard to tell uh, the best educated guess we have for worldwide uh, biggest population of killer whales is the Alaska resident population which is different from the southern and northern resident populations, so it gets a little confusing with borders and nomenclature and all sorts of stuff, but these are resident killer whales, um, so they are fish-eating. Um, so this population occurs southeast Alaska to the Aleutian Islands and the Bering Sea and has a minimum abundance of 1,123 whales, so that's quite a lot. For our next question, uh, we have a question from Daria, and who asks, are whale migration routes changing in response to climate change? Um, this is a great question, and the short answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> like everything, um, or like not everything, like many things, um, the responses to climate change are really complicated. But one of the main factors that influence whale migration is availability of food, especially krill. And krill populations are thought to mainly be decreasing in response to warming oceans, um, depleted ozone layers, higher UV radiation, and probably also ocean acidification from higher carbon, um, carbon dioxide. And so just depletions of krill, but also just changes in krill, like there might be different um, distributions of krill um, or less density of krill. All of this is going to have impact on whale um, food availability, which will impact their migration. Uh, we've already seen some changes. Uh, some whale individuals are staying in winter feeding areas all year round instead of migrating, maybe because the waters are warm, uh, maybe because there's food there all year. It's hard to know for sure. Um, but there haven't been any confirmed mating behaviors in the winter feeding areas yet. So it's not a full population-wide change in migration behavior, but individuals or smaller groups of individuals are changing their behaviors. Uh, we've also got a great article from Scientific American. It'll be in the show notes about how whales help to keep carbon out of the atmosphere. So whales eat food mainly from the surface areas, but then dive down deep, which can take water and nutrients in that water um, down to depth 
to help to cache the carbon. And also, um, whales poop. Everybody <laughs> poops. <laughs> but whales have large amounts of poop, and that poop would be really rich in carbon. And then that um, whale poop allows other animals to grow, uh, animals and plants to grow at depth, which keeps carbon in the water and out of the atmosphere. Yay. So, yeah, poop pretty cool. matters. Indeed. Uh, okay, next question comes from my husband. So Jan asks, how does the weather affect whales? Uh, and he, in particular, was like, do they care in any way if it's rainy or sunny? <laughs> um, so looking at sort of weather kind of dovetails really nicely off of Daria's question uh, about climate change, um, because large weather events, things like hurricanes, El Ninos, uh, they can affect whales and dolphins and porpoises. Um, this can impact primarily things like increased incidence of mass strandings, though it's definitely not the only thing that can contribute to mass strandings. Um, hurricanes and El Ninos can also just move animals significantly off course. So, for example, when we get reports of species that are really outside of their typical distribution zones um you know i think of uh, for example there's been a beluga whale that was spotted in oregon once upon a time uh, and was like actually for sure confirmed to be a beluga whale um there was that random gray whale that was in the mediterranean yep. for a while um it's possible that those uh are examples of large weather events impacting individuals in a species, or also just possible that those are explorers and they're off on their own adventure. Um, but large weather events can also, probably the significant impact they have on cetaceans is prey movement. So large weather has a large impact on prey distribution uh, and the changing of ocean currents and the changing of fish populations. And that obviously has similar impacts to what Sarah was saying about climate change impacts. As for his actual question about rain or sun, uh, no. <laughs> the short answer is the whales don't care. Um, but what is an important thing, though it's kind of an easy question to laugh at, is actually a significant impact to our knowledge of cetaceans. Because though we don't believe that small weather changes, rain, sun, wind, impact the day-to-day -day habits of cetaceans, they do dramatically impact the habits of researchers. So a lot of what we know about cetaceans comes from on-water-based research, and it's very hard, if not impossible, to study cetaceans in high wind conditions and stormy conditions. Mm -hmm. So we think, to be perfectly honest, that small weather, like day-to-day -day weather, doesn't impact these animals. But truth be told, it dramatically impacts us. So who knows? Maybe it does. Unlikely, but possible. Hmm. Uh, and then just on the subject of the sun in particular, because it's always nice to see animals in on a sunny day, the sun does impact them in the same way it does us in regards to sunburn. So whales can get sunburned. I believe we kind of mentioned this maybe in one of our other episodes, maybe the beluga episode. Do you guys remember? Mm, if we I don't remember. Sure. It might have been the uh, albino episode. Oh, yeah, it oh, was wait. that one. Um, but cetaceans can get sunburned. So it doesn't seem to change their behavior in any way. They have other adaptations to help protect them from the sun. Um, and we have a great article that we'll also link to in our show notes from the newscientist.com that talks about the different ways that cetacean skin has adapted to help them tan to protect them from harmful UV rays. 
Yeah. Cool. But you got to watch those tan lines. Yeah. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> so Selby asks a great question that I've never actually thought about. Do baby orcas lose their baby teeth and grow adult teeth? Um, so unlike humans, tooth whales do not have two sets of teeth. Once their teeth grow in, uh, that's all that they get. So it's much different than us. Also, unlike human teeth, tooth whales te- tooth whale teeth grow larger by producing growth layers in the root. These layers are visible and distinct and can be used to age the whale, kind of like a uh, ring on a tree. There is debate in the scientific community about how those layers grow, so that obviously would cause issues with the accuracy of counting um, the whale, and also you'd have to get a tooth, which can be difficult. Um, even if you find one, then you might not know what whale it came from, so how knowing how old the tooth is doesn't really help you in your long term. Like, I remember back in the, what do we call the 2000 to 2010 time? The aughts? The aughts. Yeah, back in the aughts. They yeah. sound all <laughs> old and not cool. Um, there was like a big shakeup in the scientific community. I don't know if you guys remember this because all of a sudden the average age of belugas like halved. Yeah. Because there had been, it was based exactly on this point that like researchers up until that point had assumed that uh, these dentine rings grew on beluga's teeth every six months. Or no, that's the. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. I it was one that. way, or the, I actually don't remember if it halved or doubled, but whatever yeah. it was, they believed that it, uh, let's say for the sake of this, that it was a dentine ring every year, and then they found out that it actually was every six months, or vice versa, because I now can't remember whether it got bigger mm-hmm. or smaller. Um, but it was like a shocking, like, oh, wait, everything's wrong by a factor of two. But didn't they also sometime, maybe in the late aughts, uh, decide that blugas don't lo- become completely white until they're at least over 20, which also changed the visual aging of belugas because they yes. just thought that white whales were like eight. Yeah. So that also, so basically we know nothing about how old belugas are. <laughs> that's, that's the gist of today's episode. It's not even our beluga episode. We're just like, we know nothing. We know nothing. Uh, our next question comes from Aurora, who would like to know about Mazatlan humpback whale migration routes. Um, some people say that they come from Alaska and other people say that they come from California and Oregon. So the answer to this is that they're both true. There are a number of different humpback whale populations that breed in Baja, Mexico, which would be seen in Mazatlan, and some winter and feed in California, and others in Washington and Oregon, and others in BC, and even others in parts of Alaska. Uh, so, and then they all sort of mix up together in uh, in Baja, which is kind of cool. We'll stick a, a great map in our show notes uh, from Cascadia Research Group, which talks about uh, all the different winter and summer grounds and sort of the population levels and abundance of humpback whales in the North Pacific. Yeah, because the whales that are in Mexico and come up to Washington and BC are also mixing with the whales that are from Hawaii. So basically everybody's mixing all the time, just sometimes in summer and sometimes in winter, which is why these projects are so great and amazing. Um, mm-hmm. We're very lucky yeah. that hump, humpback flukes are so identifiable. Otherwise, we would know nothing about any of these animals. Yeah, exactly. Our knowledge would be a lot smaller because we'd only be able to study them like for half of their life for individuals, which is... Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. good job, photo ID. Our next question comes from Kaylee Ann, <laughs> and so, she asks... I just, I just saw it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> 
Uh, I'll get into why all three of us are laughing because there's some history here, um, and which is why this question may be one of my favorites of today's episode. So Kaylee and us. Blue whales still retain their hip bones from their prehistoric ancestors, while other cetaceans do not. That's not the question. That is a fact. Um, are they now just useless structures that will eventually be bred out, or do they theoretically still have the anchor points to evolve into a new being with legs several million years from now? Ooh, blue whale with legs. Too big. <laughs> Too big. Too Die. Big. Gravity says no. <laughs> Um, so first and foremost, disclaimer, the reason that uh, the three of us are giggling like little schoolgirls is because once upon a time, a long, long, long time ago, when all three of us worked together, I was writing a dolphin show, an interpretive program about dolphins. Um, and uh, one of my boss's bosses at the time really thought it was important for me to talk about this point, um, the pelvic girdle of Pacific white-sided dolphins, of all the things. Of all the things to include in a 15-minute interpretive program about Pacific Whitesided Dolphins, this was his hill to die on. He was like, you have to talk about the... P- I can't even say it. You have to talk about the pelvic girdle. <laughs> and his point at this time, because this was, you know, over a decade ago... Um, was what Kaylee Ann is mentioning. Are these sort of vestigial structures, these sort of remnants of when the prehistoric cetaceans used to have legs, they do still have two pelvic bones. Many cetaceans have pelvic bones, um, particularly baleen whales has, are often the species, so the larger whales that still have pelvic bones, though some dolphins do as well, um, and some other toothed whales, I suppose, including the Pacific Whitesided <laughs> Dolphin, because he was really vehement about this being an important thing. Side note, I didn't include it in the show. <laughs> I kind of regret that in hindsight, but um, I stand my ground. And so in answer to Killian's question, uh, back a decade ago, and for basically since these bones were discovered in today's cetaceans, the scientific community was rarely in agreement, as they rarely are, uh, about the fact that these were obviously vestigial structures that serve no function anymore and are just there as remnants from their prehistoric ancestors. But, surprise, surprise, in 2014, a study was published by uh, some researchers working with Smithsonian, and we have a link to it in the show notes, that actually suggests there is, in fact a reason why these have not been bred out and why these pelvic bones, which aren't attached to anything, they're not attached to any other bone by any kind of ligament, they're just embedded in muscle, um, are actually used for sexy tech. So these pelvic bones attached to muscle groups called the, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this. So, um, Telly, you can correct me because you know muscles. Uh, Ischiocavernosis muscles. Looks about right. I think you just put an extra sus on the end, but other than that, it seems pretty good. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So the pelvic bones ultimately are connected. I could have just said. So the bones are attached to pelvic muscles, which are attached to the genitals. Uh, And these researchers working with Smithsonian spotted a trend that linked promiscuity based on testes body ratio size so the larger the testes was assumed to be the larger the uh, sexual appetite of male cetaceans in that particular species group as they were looking at these trends across species of cetaceans and they saw a correlational it is a correlational study but they did see a correlational rink between promiscuity and pelvic bone size and also pelvic bone uh, maintenance the fact that they still have 
pelvic bones. So obviously all animals have to uh, procreate and that means they all have to have sex in the cetacean world anyways when we're talking about procreation. But the more sort of like actively sexual, the the larger the sexual appetite, as it were, <laughs> of the cetacean species, the more presence of bones there was and the larger the bones were in their body compared to body size. So obviously a blue whale's pelvic bones are going to be big because a blue whale is big, but sort of proportionately to their body so that was fascinating to me to learn um and you know maybe now knowing that if i ever write a pacific white-sided dolphin show again in my future i will include the pelvic girdle in the program so our next question is from charlie who asks do whales need to drink fresh water which is a very valid question mammals water is good everybody go have a glass of water take pause the podcast go drink some water um, Hydrate break. Wh- yep. Whales do, but also no. Uh, whale cetaceans. <laughs> <laughs> very confusing. Just go drink your water. Um, cetaceans do need to have fresh water to stay healthy, but they don't typically drink it. Um, so they have specialized organs called rendiculate kidneys uh, with multiple lobes, uh, which increases their urine concentration efficiency uh, beyond way beyond that of humans. Um, <laughs> These animals can handle high concentrations of salt in seawater without becoming dehydrated by salt buildup, which is good because they live in oceans. Um, and, and, but humans, of course, would if we tried to live in oceans, which is why mermaids are a problem. But we don't know what kind of kidneys mermaids have, so who knows? Um, that's not to say that cetaceans drink salt water anyway, um, just because they are able to... Uh, deal with salt water in their system better than we are. It's thought that specialized kidneys are more of a precautionary measure. Um, cetaceans get most of their fresh water from their food, like krill and squid, are, which are both particularly high in fresh water, so they are very efficient in the way that they eat and drink at the same time. Um, a great full article looking at osmoregulation ad- adaptations. I haven't said that word in a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, in all marine mammals can also be found in our show notes if you want to learn more about these fancy kidneys and salt water and all that. Because although cetaceans don't typically drink salt water, though again, there's those kidneys to help and it's a precautionary measure. Um, other marine mammals do, like sea otters. They just drink it all up and they've got even more specialized structures in the body. It was a really interesting article because, you know, osmoregulation is a thing. And I similarly (laughs) had not thought about it for a really long time until I was researching that question. Our next question comes from Sarah H. Oh, yay, another Sarah. Uh, (laughs) And she'd like to know, what are the key differences between a human brain and a whale brain? First of all, they are bigger. Uh, Killer whales have the second largest brain among all ocean mammals. Their brains weigh about 15 pounds whereas human brains weigh about two and a half to three pounds. Um, Size doesn't really tell us all that much. Like size hasn't been conclusively linked to more intelligence or smarter. It's just bigger. Um, But the area, three different areas stand out as being proportionally larger in killer whale brains. Um, So the three parts are the insular cortex, its surrounding operculum, and the limbic lobe. Uh, We don't have a huge knowledge of what those parts do in killer whales, but in humans, the insular cortex is involved in our ability to hear and process sound, also something that killer whales are probably even better than us at. Um, The frontal operculum is correlated with speech, so it's been hypothesized that these structures serve similar vocal and auditory functions in killer whales. 
And in fact, a part of their operculum innervates the nasal respiratory tract, which is where killer whales vocalize from. So again, no vocal cords for any Yeah, they don't have vocal cords. They use their respiratory tract to make all of their um, vocals. So it's interesting that um, the same part of the brain that we use to do, um, to speak with our vocal cords is used to do speech in killer whales. Um, and in humans, the limbic system is emo- is associated with emotional processing and behavior, as well as the formation of memories. So again, there's lots of um, theories around like how uh, whales transmit information and the sort of culture and shared knowledge that a population of orcas has. So it's interesting that those same um, parts of the brain, if those parts of the brain do the same function in killer whales, um, it's interesting that they're proportionally larger. All right. Our next question comes from PNW Godzilla, which first of all, excellent name. Love it. Great handle. Um, And they ask, I read that there's a bacteria that exists in the tubercles of humpbacks. Under a microscope, these bacteria all point in the same direction. And then when you shake the disc, the bacteria all realign very quickly in the same direction, which is magnetic north. And it's always magnetic north. Assumptions have been made that this may aid the whale's navigation on the open ocean. Is there any validity to this? So I had never heard this before. And this was fascinating to Mm -hmm. me. And I spent days trying to find the article or articles that PNW Godzilla is referencing with this question. And I could not find any of them. Um, even non-reputable sites, all I ended up with was like how the tubercles of humpbacks have helped with the shaping of uh, new wind turbines, which oh. is a whole other interesting thing about sort of animal biology and physiology helping with um, innovation, which is a, probably a worthy of a separate podcast for us, just as a side note. Um, but I couldn't find anything to do with this particular question. So PNW Godzilla, if you're listening, I want so badly to learn more about this, um, regardless of whether there is any validity to it, which is a separate question that I would really like to get into. I just want to know more about these bacteria because it sounds fascinating so could you please send us this article or whatever research it is that you're referencing with your question because i think i can speak for all three of us like we're giant geeks and this was crazy and i wanted immediately to learn more um though i could not answer your question and again apologies that we couldn't find that and if you send us the article we will dig down and we will hypothesize and we'll ask if there is any validity i certainly like just reading your question it was like oh that would be crazy, and I feel like that would be earth-shattering to learn, and maybe it is how they navigate, and, oh, we figured it out. Um, <laughs> but though we couldn't figure that out, I did learn a whole heck of a lot about humpback whale skin bacteria while I was trying to find the article you were referencing. Um, and so we've just, you know, for sake of continued uh, recognition that bacteria is really, really important and it's not always icky and it's not always going to give you a cold. Um, in fact, viruses are the things that give you colds. Side <laughs> note. <laughs> not all bugs need drugs. <laughs> I bacteria is really really important in maintaining healthy environments in our skin as well um and so i had never thought about the fact that of course even you know like we talk about well we don't but people talk about often the fact that you know there's a lot of healthy bacteria and gut bacteria and we talk about that with regards to humans but of course that exists in other animals and i'd never thought about it in cetaceans and uh thankfully there's people way smarter than me out there who are starting to think about that and so there uh was a team of researchers with the woods hole oceanographic institute uh whose acronym is wooey which is great <laughs> or hooey 
Um, and they have actually been studying this very question with regards to bacterial communities on humpback whales. And they've been able to identify across the world's populations of humpbacks, a core set of skin bacteria that's present in every single humpback whale population, regardless of where their breeding grounds or feeding grounds are. And so they're hoping to be able to use this bacterial community as a way to assess the overall health of humpback whales, similar to bacterial research in humans. So that was really cool. And again, I'm always a really, really big fan of when I can find a full journal article accessible online Mm -hmm. for free. So we have that available in the social show notes. Okay, so Amanda asks... Which cetaceans have the best singing voice or which do the most singing? Um, So in a previous episode, I think our second one, um, we discussed the differences between vocalizing and singing, which is a whole other thing that you can find out about in that episode. Um, There are five species of whales that routinely do what we would consider singing. The humpback, the minke, the blue whale, the fin whale, and bowhead whales. Uh, The frequency of their singing isn't particularly well understood across all five species, but the humpback is the one that is the best studied. Um, And if you want to decide who has the best voice, you can take a listen by following the links in our show notes and listening to all five and then yeah tell us what you think because so which one did you guys like best well i don't know minky whales sound like lightsabers it's true you know that's a point for them but definitely I also feel that minky <laughs> minky whales should get something in their lives because they smell real bad and well, stinky minky and also they're real small for yeah. baleen whales so they it's gotta true. have something that's true I do like, so the fin whale clip is sped up. I think the blue whale might be as well, um, but we'll have the links in our show notes so that you can actually go to the longer recordings. Um, but I know the fin whale one is sped up so that we can actually hear it to the human ear because I think what I like the most about fin whales, yeah. and we talked about this in a, a previous episode as well, is that it routinely gets picked up on seismographs. Their song <laughs> is picked up as like tectonic plates moving. <laughs> so yeah. that's also pretty cool. I think my favorite are the humpbacks, but that might just be because I we know so much about them and the changing of them, and so it's like that. The more not the more knowledge I have about it, the more fascinating I find them. So I'm gonna pick humpbacks. I don't know if they're actually more fascinating, but I just know enough to be more fascinated by them. Our last question is from Chris, who asks: Is the comparison of the blue whale heart to a VW beetle still accurate, given all the ways that the model has changed? And if not, what is now the more relevant car comparison? Uh, this was Nicole's favorite question, and it I was. think also mine. <laughs> um, yeah. So a blue whale's heart is about five feet long and four feet wide and five feet tall, and it weighs about 400 pounds. So a Volkswagen Beetle measures about 13 feet long, five feet wide, and six feet tall. So not the same size. And if we go by weight, um, curb weight depends a whole bunch of things, but um, is about 1,800 pounds. So, so very wrong. Very wrong. Very, very I, wrong. Nicole, did you find a weight of what, like, an original beetle weighed? Yeah, it would. So um, it helps that my husband works on cars for a living. <laughs> he was very helpful in figuring out this question. Um, 
Uh, the Volkswagen Beetle, though the look of it, we're going to turn mm. into a car podcast here for a second. Oh, no. <laughs> Run away. The Volkswagen Beetle, I do love the look of this car, though yeah. the look has changed significantly since it was first designed in the 1930s. The actual size of it by length and height mm. and width has only changed by a couple of inches, which is so right. crazy because if you look at like a 1936 oh, yeah, it's so and yeah. a 2000, but like totally different looking car, but in terms of uh, proportions, still basically the same size. Mm-hmm. The weight has only fluctuated by a couple of hundred pounds. Oh, so okay. still way off way, from yeah, the whale's yeah, Way, way off. Um, so maybe they did the study when they were like, not sure about how big a blue whale's heart was, or not this study. Maybe they <laughs> ma- started making this comparison when when they didn't actually know how big a blue whale's heart was, they were just taking a guess and then the comparison stuck. Anyways, it's definitely an urban legend. It was never true, but it sounded right. And it's like a thing that you can picture in your head, even though you're picturing incorrect information. Um, So what would be a better analogy? So if you think of like a really small car, like a smart car, um, they're about nine feet long, five feet wide and five feet high and 1500 pounds. So still no, still way too long and way too heavy. Uh, A golf cart size wise is about right. Four by four feet by eight feet by six feet. So pretty close, but they weigh about twice the weight of a blue whale's heart. So if you're thinking about just how big in terms of size and dimensions, a golf cart is pretty close. Um, uh, National Geographic has like a sort of all ages focused um, blog post about how big a blue whale's heart is. Yeah, when we were first looking at this question, I was trying to think of something at all um, that you could use to think about. And all I could think of, because it's five feet, four feet, and five feet, is like, just get you and two of your friends, one of them who's a little bit shorter, and kind of like stand together. Like a four person tent is probably about the same size. Definitely not weight, but... (laughs) Yeah, well... A four-person tent with 400-pound people in it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yep, that's true. <laughs> two parents and two kids probably going to do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're looking for just, like, size, think of, you know, a five-foot-tall person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, four yeah. feet wide and uh, five feet long. So that's, like, yeah. a person standing and a person lying down and a person lying down the other way. You know, <laughs> it's hard, three dimensions, but... Um, just think about like that kind of thing. Cause there's nothing I can think of like the golf cart works, but yeah. otherwise I can't, I was like sitting at my desk, like, like the Adirondack chair on my balcony, like looking around trying yeah. to find something that was five feet long, but, but yeah, um, no, a small, a small tent, like a small four person tent with four small people in it. <laughs> oh, I think that probably wraps up this episode. Um, just again, huge huge thank you to everybody who submitted their questions we love learning and we love having you along on our learning adventure with us um i think what you've hopefully taken away if nothing else from this episode is that sometimes the simplest questions have the most complicated answers Mm -hmm. and for me what that just really reinforces is how important the work of any researcher is regardless of what that researcher is studying they're studying something that we don't already know and knowledge is power and knowledge is so vital to our society and to growing as a human being so the fact that there's people out there 
asking questions that have never been asked before and trying to find information that we've never found before, even if it's something that, you know, like no one has thought to ask or people have thought to ask for a long time, but they didn't think it was actually worth investigating like the Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> um, just a huge, huge thank you to everybody who's out there studying anything. And uh, I think it's really important to recognize that like, you don't have to be a researcher to act like one. The scientific method and applying critical thought is something uh, I certainly wish more people did these days in the era of fake news. Asking questions about where the information you get is coming from and what biases are attached to it. Like, that's why we had our disclaimer at the top of this show. Like, this is a, all of the answers to all of these questions are North American centric and English centric. It's totally possible that an article has been published in Portuguese somewhere that like answers one of these questions that we that would totally turn an answer on its head and we just don't have access to that and i mean if there's somebody listening who speaks portuguese and knows about it please tell us and translate it (laughs) because again we want to learn um so when it comes to the age that we're living in and the era of fake news the best thing that we can all do is to just empower ourselves and to empower the people around us with the ability to think critically about everything that you hear and to try not to, like it's called the era of fake news. And it's also called the era of outrage because oftentimes the things that you hear outrage you and it's understandable because that's sensationalist media. But if you do take a second to just think critically about like, who is telling me this? Why are they telling me this in this place, in this way? Hopefully we can apply some, some rational and critical thought to what we're learning and try and instill that ability in others. And understand that the world is not black and white and that almost everything exists in some kind of shade of gray and that's where where magic happens because it's great that there's things that we can debate so uh after all of that you can find all the info about us and everything that we do on our website uh at whale-tales.org and that includes our merch and our patreon like we talked about with our new newsletter perk um, our podcast subscription link if you want white what you hear from this one and want to listen more and of course over 700 whale dolphin and porpoise stories you can also head to our site to share your stories it's not a big deal and it's not scary you don't have to be an expert if you've seen a cessation we would love to hear about it and we would love to add your story to our library so click the share link on our site contact us on social media at whaletales.org or email us a voice memo and tell us about your incredible cetacean encounter that's whale-tales.org tales like the stories not tales like the animal Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. We will be back in two weeks with more fun facts, stories, and super nerdy trivia. Thanks, everybody, and have a whaley great world whale day.